Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same going question. through Nabokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and meticulously. It was a weird one to write because every time I tried to write one. a viral sensation, right? Like it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Glenn Stout. He has a new book coming out on March 30th, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, America's original gangster couple, is about a husband and wife who robbed jewelers and bankers blind over the course of one year in the 1920s. I say they make Bonnie and Clyde look like a couple of amateurs, and they did. And uh, I mean, they were smarter, they were more successful, they were way better looking, Um, but uh, you know, history forgot about them. And uh, I discovered them and I thought, boy, this is a story that needs to be told. 2021 has been an amazing year already for Stout. His book, Young Woman in the Sea, will be turned into a movie for Disney+. Production should be starting soon. The book is about Trudy Etterly. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel. Etterly is going to be played by Daisy Ridley. She played Rey in the newest Star Wars movies. As if that's not enough, Stout has also found a way to make sure the best sports writing in the country will continue to be anthologized. 2020 was the 30th and final year for best American sports writing. Stout had been the series editor for the entire time. The new series will be called The Year's Best Sports Writing. It will be published by Triumph Books. Stout will edit the first edition. He's also created an amazing advisory board that will carry the book forward. I'm very excited uh, to see it happen. I won't be the editor every year. Uh, In fact, my role in the next two years will diminish and then fade away to nothing. I've never considered it my book, but uh, there was enough uh, interest in the industry that the industry of readers and writers of, of sports writing was interested enough that I thought um, I'll do what I can to get this launched and to get it down the runway and uh, we'll see if it flies. That book will be available in October. As usual, I've linked to everything that Stout and I talked about. You can find that on the website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast. 
Glenn, welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. Thanks very much, Matt. I think you're, this is the third time you've been on the show now, which I'm starting to like be doing this since I've been doing the podcast long enough. I'm having repeat uh, visitors, so... <laughs> But but I mean, well, hopefully we don't repeat ourselves too much. I, right, I don't think we're going to. I think we're good because uh, I've got a lot of fun stuff that I want to talk with you about for this show. Um, first and foremost, um, your book "Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid: America's Original Gangster Couple" uh, is going to be out uh, on March thirtieth. Uh, the book's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Um, first of all, congratulations! It's got to be exciting to see this thing come into life. Oh, it is, uh, particularly because it's a, a project that I've been involved with for about 15 years. So to finally to, to finally see it come uh, uh, in print and out and available is is very, very exciting. Yeah, I definitely want to ask you some questions about like what made you stick with it for so long. But but before we get there, can you can you tell me uh, basically give me a synopsis of, of what's what's this book about? Well, this, the, the book is about um, Richard and Margaret Whittemore, and they were two young kids from Baltimore who, um, in the wake of World War One and the pandemic and an economic depression that took place in 1920 and 1921, um, they got married and embarked on a life of crime. Uh, they really had few other options uh, presented for them. They were working class kids. Richard Whittemore had been in trouble basically his entire life. They got married, and a week later, he was arrested for burglary and sent to the Maryland Penitentiary. He'd already done time in the Elmira Performatory and various other, um, you know, boys' schools and things of that nature. He'd been in the military and been booted out. And... Um, when he was in the penitentiary, he hooked up with these two master criminals from uh, from Europe, the Kramer brothers, who were safe crackers, who invented the uh, can opener system of, of, you know, breaking into safes. And while they were in prison, they come, came up with an idea of when they got out to become master jewel thieves. And Margaret Whittemore, Richard's wife, was on board with that. She wanted nice things as a young woman of that time. She didn't have many other options in her life. It was the Roaring Twenties. Prohibition kind of provided the fuel for the era. Uh, and it was, a, you know, it was a time where American society was changing so fast. Everything had become electrified. People had cars. Uh, you know, youth culture was exploding. It was the beginning of magazine media. You know, society was just changing so, so fast. And they wanted to participate in that. They, they wanted to go out. They wanted to have fun. They wanted to cut loose like everybody else. And, uh, and that's what they did. And together with the Kramer brothers, they went on a crime spree of, that lasted a little over a year. They stole upwards of $1 million in jewels which is the equivalent of about $15 million today. Um, you know, Richard Whittemore ended up getting out of prison uh, by killing a guard. So he was wanted for murder the entire time. Uh, and while they were out and successful, uh, they lived a high life. Uh, Richard and Margaret lived uh, in one of the most exclusive residential apartment hotels in New York. They went to nightclubs every night. They 
burned every candle there was to burn. And then he got caught. And um, uh, kind of long story short, he agreed to cop to the crimes if uh, the police allowed Margaret to go free. And that made them cause celeb and celebs and anti-heroes for a generation of young Americans who didn't look at them with disdain, but looked at them with uh, with envy. They were doing what they wanted to do. They were, were reaching for everything all at once. And uh, over the course of a couple of months, they became, uh, you know, tabloid heroes for the the American tabloid press which was just gaining traction at that time. They were as famous as any two people in America. Um, front page of the New York Times over 40 times in one year. And uh, then at the end of that year, you know, Richard went to the gallows in, uh, at, the, at the Maryland State Penitentiary. He was hung. H.L. Mencken was in the crowd and witnessed his hanging. Um, outside the uh, prison when he was hung, there were thousands of people, and they were not there to, you know, to celebrate his death. It was like a wake. It was uh, they were celebrating his life. Uh, they didn't want to see him go. Um, and it's just a. Uh, and the amazing thing is, is that they became utterly forgotten. Um, you know, there were. I, I I say they make Bonnie and Clyde look like a couple of amateurs, and they did. And, uh, I mean, they were smarter, they were more successful, they were way better looking, um, but, uh, you know, history forgot about them. And uh, I discovered them, and I thought, boy, this is a story that needs to be told. It's a fantastic read. I'm, uh, I've enjoyed it so much, uh, and I read it very quickly, too, and I'm a slow reader, so um, that's always a good sign. Um, how did you hear about this couple? Because, I mean, like you said, they kind of disappeared, right, uh, from, from our memory. Yeah, well, well, years ago, I'd done, you know, a, um, I did, was doing a lot of baseball history. And while I was doing the baseball history, I stumbled across another story about somebody virtually forgotten. And that was Gertrude Ederly, the woman who swam the English Channel. And I started working on a book about her. This is in about 2007. Uh, and that book, I think, came out in 2009, eventually. And while I was researching her story... Just as I discovered headlines about her while researching some baseball stuff, I discovered headlines about Tiger Girl and Candy Kid. And my initial attraction was to the names. I mean, those are two you know, incredibly evocative names um, for a crime couple. And I just started poking at it and researching it and was, you know, became enthralled by the story because there are such wonderful intersections with the era. Um, you know, there's cameos in the book by like, you know, Rudolph Valentino and Gloria Swanson and, uh, you know, uh, jazz musicians of that era. And, you know, he, they were really in the, in the midst of everything in cabaret society in New York during prohibition, you know, living life to the hilt. Um, and it gives it, it, you know, gave a different perspective on the 1920s than you get from somebody like Fitzgerald who's writing about the upper class who are kind of bored with their lifestyles, you know, Richard and Margaret, they wanted that lifestyle. <laughs> that was intriguing to them. That was enthralling with them. And, and, and they went for it. Um, and anyway, so I, I got intrigued by the story and back then I actually put together a proposal and we pitched it 
with my agents and to about 16 publishers, and they seemed totally thrilled with it. And um, then the recession hit, and we expected the book to go to auction, and then no one bid on it because of the recession. They weren't buying books. So I kind of tabled it and went on to other projects, but I kept on returning to it, and I thought it still made a great story. So over the years, I continued to research. I continued to research, kept on finding more and more. And uh, a couple of years ago, I very, I, you know, decided this is the only book I want to do. And I, I told my agents that they didn't want to put it out there again, um, but they did. And it was acquired on a preempt. And uh, I kind of went from there and, uh, you know, found more and more and more material. And I was just so intrigued by the story that I thought this has to be told. This is so rich, so evocative. It's also a romance, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, there's that element to it. And another side element is that Margaret Whittemore, Richard's wife, Tiger Girl, uh, you know, she's a, the, the quintessential gun mole, almost the template for the gangster gun mole, just as he's sort of the template for the gangster that we later meet in the movies yet the gun mole and women criminals of that era have never been profiled they're totally overlooked they're utterly forgotten as far as i know this is really the only book that gives any any weight to the role that a woman played in this kind of you know criminal enterprise and you know she wasn't as involved as he was but she certainly benefited materially. She had lots of nice things. She had wonderful clothes. Uh, she wore the, the, the most expensive jewelry. He bought her Cadillac. Um, and, you know, and they were like, you know, 22, 23, 24 years old. Um, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like they built up to this. They, uh, they went from nothing to everything in, uh, in record time. Uh, you mentioned the Trudy Ederly story and, and, and we're going to talk about that in the second half of the show. Um, cause there's some fun stuff happening there as well. Um, but, uh, w with, uh, with Richard and Margaret, um, uh, when you, you know, when you, when, when the book proposal kind of, uh, I guess died in, during the recession, um, where, where, but you said you kept, uh, researching, where do you go? Were you, where were you going to actually dig in and, and learn about, uh, this couple? Well, the bulk of the of the research takes place in period newspapers. Um, there's no other place to go to get this kind of information about people like them. And maybe that's why their story hadn't been told before, because uh, even though I did FOIAs and things of that nature, um, you know, there's no federal records of their crimes. Um, you know, they went on trial. He went on trial in Buffalo for two murders. He went on trial in Baltimore for the murder with which he was convicted. Um, there's no transcripts that exist anymore or anything like that. So you had to build it from the newspaper reportage. Fortunately, uh, they were widely, widely covered. Um, you know, they were known coast to coast. New York, the New York tabloids were all over them. The Daily News, the New York Mirror, uh, other papers. The New York Times covered them because they were such an anomaly. And then in Baltimore... Not only did the Baltimore Sun cover them heavily, but Baltimore had two tabloids, the Baltimore Post and the Baltimore News. 
and they covered uh, them on a daily basis, pretty much from the time they were arrested, which is when everyone realized that this gang had been in existence and had been operating for a year. But for the next four or five months, uh, during both of the trials, all the way up to the time that uh, Richard was hung in the gallows, there were stories in all those newspapers every day, as well as like the newspapers in Brooklyn and newspapers in Philadelphia and wire reports from the International News Service and United Press and Associated Press. Um, they were written about as much as any two people in the country during that brief time period of about four or five months. So that's where I got virtually all the material um, to tell their story and to recreate their time period uh, and, and, and how they intersected with the 1920s and, and how their story mirrored the story of so many other young Americans during that time period. It's been very gratifying to me so far to find out that um, so many readers, particularly younger readers, particularly young women readers, are enthralled with that story because they identify with it. You know, if you if you look at the generation coming of age right now, they're coming out of a time period where the United States has been involved in several, you know, military conflicts and wars. Uh, we're coming out of a pandemic. Uh, we're in the midst of a recession. Uh, things look pretty bleak. Uh, that's how the world looked to Richard and Margaret when they decided we're going to shoot for everything. We're going to take what we can get. We're not going to ask for it. We're just going to take it. And, um, you know, that has some resonance, <laughs> um, I think, with, with young people today. And, and, and that's been kind of surprising to me to see that they've um, been so interested in their story and so accepting of their story and, and have found, you know, elements in their story that they can identify with. Perhaps not, you know, to the degree they're not going out and robbing the uh, jewelry stores or anything like that, but they certainly understand the impulses that drove uh, both Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. Yeah, I'm, I've been doing some research into um, a possible book project, at, you know, uh, over the years that is, 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 is existing in close to the same time frame, um, maybe about five years later than where your book takes place. But this is one thing I've noticed is um, so it, it feels like so much of what was happening back in this time frame, the 1920s, you know, leading up into the 1930s is so similar to what we've been experiencing right now. Um, there's just so many similarities. Yeah, very much so. And it's also, it's sort of the beginning of the modern age that we're still living inside today. I mean, you know, America became electrified and suddenly there was nightlife and suddenly there was recorded music and there were telephones and there were magazines and there was mass media and there were celebrities. Well, all of that still exists today. It's just the medium of delivery has changed a little bit. It's all coming digital now. It's all coming over our computers. But the activities that people began to take part in, you, you know, are all the same. It was, a, it was, you know, you had birth control for the first time. So women were in control of their bodies. You didn't have to, um, you know, find a husband and get married. You know, you could have a life of your own. Um so it's it's there's there's a lot of parallels and a lot of resonance with today um, that I think people people really identify with and and see that uh, 
you know, what we're always looking for in any story, uh, no matter what it's about, as readers, we want to find in someone else's story a part of our own story, right? I think that's what happens in Tiger Girl and Candy Kid, is that it's possible in their story to see parts of, of your own story, even though our own stories didn't don't end, we hope, as tragically uh, and, and, you know, with the deaths of several people, um, we still see them as human beings and not as uh, caricatures. You know, before Richard and Margaret, there really weren't uh, gangsters. There really weren't gun moles. One of the arguments I make in the book is that they set the template for the, the gangsters and gun moles that were later popularized uh, in talking pictures. Uh, beginning in the late 1920s and into the 1930s. Uh, those characters didn't exist, really, before Richard and Margaret. And uh, anytime I see a gangster film from the 1930s that's about the 1920s, I see all these elements of Richard and Margaret in characters. And it's really interesting because many of the tabloid reporters that reported on their story ended up going to Hollywood and being screenwriters and producers and mimicked and mirrored their stories in the stories they later told about that era, uh, which is fascinating to me. So, uh, so you were doing, uh, it's mostly a newspaper archives um, uh, that you were working out of. And I'm curious, you had to have come across, I don't even want to guess how many newspaper articles, tens of thousands, I'm guessing. Did you print out every single one? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a printout guy. Uh, I printed out every single one uh, that I could. And, uh, you know, my arrangements are, you know, everybody does uh, book construction a different way. I print everything out, and this was essentially a chronological story. So then I arrange my files chronologically. And, you know, you to, to, take, a, uh, to take a story like that and make it three-dimensional, it's a process that I, I call layering. I might have an account of, say, of a, of a particular jewel store heist, and one of them might say, um, might describe what, the, what they were all wearing. Another story might add what, the car, what car they escaped with. Another story might have snippets of dialogue that the perpetrators said to, uh, to the people who were working in the jewelry shop. Another might have a quote from the person in the jewelry shop. So you take five, six, seven accounts, you put them together, and suddenly you have a three-dimensional portrait of what actually took place. You're not depending on one single account that says what happened. You're taking multiple accounts that, taken together, paint a three-dimensional, almost cinematic picture of what took place. That's the process that I use throughout the book uh, to recreate these crimes, to recreate the courthouse scenes. You know, I, I did, don't have trial transcripts, but the newspapers at the time, like in Buffalo alone, I think there were six daily newspapers that covered his trial in Buffalo. From those six newspapers, they almost reproduced the trial transcripts verbatim. Um, so you know exactly what went on, and and you can you can you know you can colorize it. There's there's one incident in the trial where he's finally convicted of, of murdering a prison guard, 
uh, where at the end of the trial, as Richard's being taken out of the courthouse after he's been found guilty, he turns and he spits in the prosecutor's face. And I don't just have one account of that. I have multiple accounts of that. So I know how the crowd reacted. I know how the prosecutor reacted. He laughed and he said he told the uh, the uh, defense attorney, uh, you know, it was the best it was the best thing that could have happened. <laughs> you know, he, he knew he did a good job if, if, if Richard Whitmore was going to spit in his face. Um, so I, I think I really, you know, bring it to life and I and I try to echo the the time period a little bit in the writing. Um, you know, I don't go over the top, I don't think, but there's a there's a touch of the hard boiled um, uh, tabloid style in the writing. Uh, there's so much of that in the reportage of the time that it's so rich. You, you almost don't know what to pick because the, the, the writers are kind of so over the top at times in their descriptions and, and how they present them. But it was, it was just, um, you know, almost every story I would find was like uh, Christmas morning. Um, you know, in one of the Baltimore papers, I found that Richard Whittemore told the story of his life in a 15,000 word story that appeared over a week and a half period. Uh, that was just incredibly rich and, uh, you know, really added another element. Not that he always told the truth. Uh, you know, it was a very self-serving account, but, uh, but it certainly gave some insight and some color to their activities that uh, otherwise I wouldn't have had. And also, they let uh, reporters back then so close to the prisoners, right? Yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean, after they were arrested, I mean, they would let the reporters in the room while they were grilling. Um, Richard Whittemore and the other members of the gang. Uh, the reporters even witnessed them being beaten. And this is reported as matter-of-factly. You know, the, the justice system at the time and the penal system at the time, I write a, quite a bit about each. I mean, the, the penal system back then was as much uh, um, responsible for creating Richard Whittemore as anything else because the, amount, the level of brutalization that took place in juvenile facilities and, and prisons back then uh, is unbelievable even today. And we know it's terrible today. It was even worse then. And the way the justice system operated, I mean, he was, he was put on trial for murder twice. In each case, you know, the trial took place within weeks of the charge. The trials only lasted about two days each time. They were shotgun proceedings. Um, he, he hardly had an opportunity to mount a defense. And in the final trial in Baltimore, his attorney, his defense attorney, was Edgar Allan Poe, the descendant of the famous poet Edgar Allan Poe. And in the trial, during they started the Voy Dyer process, and the judge just summarily ruled that Edgar Allan Poe was not going to have the opportunity to question any of the witnesses at all. Uh, so you ended up having people on the uh, people on the jury who actually knew some of the victims, uh, and the judge himself, in fact, ten years before, had defended the Kramer brothers when they'd been arrested uh, for jewel theft. So um, you know that's why the story is so resonant because it speaks to you know so many contemporary issues. The the whole concept of, of the just of is the justice system just? Um, you know, back then it was kind of a given that the cops and, and authorities were corrupt. 
And there are certainly elements of that in these stories where they make things up, where they beat confessions out of people. And it was that's just the way things were. There was nothing, you know, surprising about any of this. Um, but, you know, the, the, the nice thing is that it remains a story. This isn't an encyclopedia, um, but it remains a story essentially about two people intersecting uh, with a period of time in American life, which um, is the beginning of the age within which we still live today. Well, the book comes out on March 30th. Uh, you have anything? Uh, can you do book launches in, in this in this day and age? What do you do? You have anything going on? Yeah, with difficulty, we have a book launch going on at Belmont Books in just outside Boston on March 30th. Bill Littlefield, who um, did the national public radio show Only a Game and is a longtime friend, Bill will be moderating that. And then the following day on March 31st, the Baltimore County Public Library is also hosting a Zoom event. And those are available for the public to sign in on and participate in. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of interviews like this one with various podcasts and Zooms. And that's sort of uh, sort of the way you have to do it uh, right now. Uh, um, there's some optimism that I might participate in in CrimeCon, which is the true crime conventions that uh, that are held uh, several times a year. And there's one scheduled to be held in uh, in June in Austin, Texas. I still hope to participate in that if it's held. Um, they've had to suspend, you know, the last several conventions due to COVID, but cross our fingers that uh, there might be uh, some opportunities then to, you know, to deliver the story uh, in person to some people. Uh, you know, I created a, a, a brief book trailer video uh, that kind of gives the, the gist of the story in three minutes that I'm that I'm pushing out. And, uh, you know, I've got a Facebook page for Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid and, um you know, you just try to do as many things as you can right now to put it in front of as many eyeballs as possible uh, and hope that uh, that people pay attention and people are intrigued by the story. I'm really, really happy that uh, there's going to be an audiobook version of the book and a woman uh, actor by the name of Christina Delane, who is one of the premier uh, audiobook narrators out there. She has won virtually every award there is in that world uh, purely by chance. She's the friend of a friend of a friend of mine, and they put us in touch, and she was excited to do the book, and we were able to work that out. And uh, I mean, she's so good. People buy her audiobooks just because of her. Forget, <laughs> forget who the author is. Forget what the subject is. And I'm absolutely thrilled that uh, that she's doing the, the audio version of the book, which I think will be uh, spectacular. Well, we will uh, get lots of links up onto the, the podcast website, especially to the book launch uh, events uh, and the, the Baltimore Library event. Uh, the, we'll get those on gangrythepodcast.com. Um, Glenn, we're going to take a short break, uh, but I will be back with more from Glenn Stout uh, in one minute. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the digital journalism and sports media programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling 
to podcasting, to narrative journalism, and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students for work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Glenn Stout, the author of The Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, America's original gangster couple. The book goes on sale on March 30th. Uh, Glenn, uh, you mentioned a uh, another book that you wrote. Um, I think it was published in 2009, and it was about Trudy Ederly. Uh, the book is The Young Woman and the Sea, How Trudy Ederly Conquered the English Channel and Inspired the World. Um, there's some cool stuff happening with that book, right? Yeah, there is some cool stuff happening with that. Uh, a little over five years ago, uh, sort of out of nowhere, the book was suddenly optioned for film by uh, Jeff Nathanson, who's best known as the screenwriter for the uh, Leo DiCaprio movie, Catch Me If You Can. And he's also worked on the um, Pirates of the Caribbean movies and The Lion King. Uh, you know, he's quite accomplished. And, and he optioned the book, which was which was nice. Um, but at the time, you know, uh, I was uh, pretty... Uh, um, skeptical of the whole process i mean my agent told me that if a book gets optioned it's about a one in a thousand chance of it ever coming to be and uh anyway apparently we've threaded that one in a thousand uh chance because uh, a couple of years ago it became very close to going into production and then the actress who had agreed to do it backed out so we had to start from scratch again and anyway in december uh, it was announced that Disney Plus has picked it up, and uh, it uh, and now Daisy Ridley, who starred in the last three Star Wars films, has signed on to play uh, Trudy Ederly. And uh, if everything keeps going uh, well, Joaquin Roenig, who did Contiki, uh, which was nominated for Academy Award as Best Foreign Picture a few years ago, has signed on to direct. And... You know, there is still COVID, um, but the expectation now is that um, the, the movie will go into production by this fall and uh, will appear on Disney+. Plus. And uh, that's, you know, very, very exciting. They've been, uh, Jeff has been nothing but really kind to me the entire time. I've, uh, you know, seen the screenplay or a version of the screenplay anyway. I've been called on to answer questions for the actors in terms of motivation. And uh, I've had to respond to queries about various elements of the story. And, um, you know, it's very exciting. And, um, you know, now it seems, you know, I always use the crossing of the channel itself as the metaphor for getting it actually made, made on film. You know, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes people can get really close to shore and not quite get on shore. In fact, last year, someone made it within 50 feet of swimming the channel and had to be taken out of the water. So um, nothing is ever certain. But right now, we can almost put our feet on the bottom. And I'm hopeful that by this fall, uh, they'll be walking on shore and uh, we'll have a, a, a film that goes into production and that should appear sometime in 2022. 
It's uh, it's really kind of crazy that uh, well, with the Tiger Girl and Candy Kid, that's a book that's been, you know, you were so close in two thousand and what in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, or no, two thousand eight, maybe right. somewhere around there. You were so close then, and then it got pulled back, and now it's happening in this movie, right? It's been, it's been on and off and on and off. And now it's getting there. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy to see you're seeing all of this stuff come to reality all at once. Yeah. It is kind of funny that way, but uh, you know, actually five years from time to option to film is not really that long in Hollywood. (laughs) These things take a, take a long time. There's, you know, you have to, they have to get financing together. They have to get a director. They have to get a star. Everybody has to be available at the same time. Uh, you know, if not for COVID, I think it probably would be in production by now. But um, I'm probably one of hundreds of people who are saying that about their their book projects right now. But um, you know, you just uh, kind of stick with things. I mean, even you know, Tiger Girl. I talked to a very very well thought of, well known agent at one point. I didn't talk to him about Tiger Girl specifically. But I remember him saying at an event I was at that the one thing you never do is pitch a book that's already been turned down. And uh, I just thought the story was better than that. And uh, so enough time had passed. I actually did the research of all the people who had had a look at that originally. And I think of those 16 people, only three of them were even still in the industry. So why not pitch it again? And uh, I worked on the proposal a little bit and, 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 you know, changed a few things. But it was essentially and, and in the long run, it actually worked out for the best because more material was available to me um, uh, now than it would have been uh, years ago. Um, so, so that's all worked out for the best. But you, you just kind of, you know, you never focus on a project. Um, you, 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 all, you just keep working on projects and whatever happens to them is sort of out of your control. Okay, Uh, and with Tiger Girl uh, or with uh, Young Woman in the Sea, that's been there, but I haven't banked on it. I've continued to do, you know, I've done a number of other books since then. I've just continued to do my work. And I think, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And if there is a lesson, you continue to do your work. And that's all you can control is your effort day by day, year by year. And. Maybe if you do the work the right way, uh, good things eventually happen. You, you, that's the hope, anyway. Um, and if you, but if you don't enjoy the work for itself, if you're hoping for, you know, oh, I'm going to have a great book launch party, or I'm going to be famous, or all this, I'm going to meet famous people because of it. You're focusing on all the wrong things. You just have to focus on the project, and and if you do the project well enough then there's a possibility of other other nice things happening with it. Um, that That's, you know, how I have to look at it. Otherwise, you're, you're just, you become frozen in place. So um, uh, another project that you have spent a long time on is Best American Sports Writing, uh, which officially came to an end last fall with, with, I think, the 30th edition. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct, yep. But... Uh, before, I mean, I guess uh, we thought it was all over, but it's not, right? What's going on there? Well, best American sports writing is all over, but there will still be an annual collection of sports writing. 
Um, shortly after it was announced that uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt decided that they were not going to continue the series, uh, there was a, quite a little uproar on Twitter and on Facebook from um, readers of the book and contributors to the book. I mean, I've had literally dozens and dozens of people send me photographs of their bookshelf uh, that shows that they have all 30 volumes and bemoaning the fact that what am I going to get, uh, you know, what are they going to put in my stocking for Christmas this year? Um, and then uh, Triumph Books contacted me. And Triumph Books contacted me interested in starting another series and if i had any thoughts about that so over the last year we've had uh, talks and discussions um you know i was never asked by houghton mifflin uh if i thought there was a way the series could continue if i thought there were changes to be made i had some strong feelings about that but they never asked uh triumph asked uh and through a series of discussions uh, we put together um uh, a way to continue the series, uh, very similar, but not identical. It will be called the year's best sports writing 2021 for the first edition, which will be out this fall in October. Um, it will differ a little bit in the way it's put together. There will be no, you know, I served as series editor for 30 years. There will be no series editor per se. There will be an editor of the book every year who will be fully, fully responsible for the contents. I will serve in that position the first year, but I've also created, uh, to kind of help that process, I've created an advisory board of uh, some pretty notable people uh, in our business, some writers who are really interested in this kind of work, who were invited to um, make their own submissions of material they've read this year. Uh, and that includes people like uh, Howard Bryan of ESPN and Ben Baby of ESPN, Alex Belt, who curates the stacks, Kim Cross, who's been a contributor to the book, Latreya Graham, who's just can write about anything, Roberto Jose Andrade Franco, who was a finalist for the Jenkins Award this past year, Michael Mooney, uh, you know, who seems to know everybody in the business, and Linda Robertson, who has been in the book uh, multiple times as sports columnist and columnist for the Miami Herald, and and they all weighed in with their suggestions. Knowing this was likely to take place, I kept my ear to the ground over the course of the year. Uh, anyway, although I no longer solicited um, submissions because until we knew officially this was going to take place, that I didn't feel comfortable doing that. Um, and uh, anyway, the uh, at this point, uh, the book was announced on uh, March the third, and uh, will be published in October. And uh, I'm very excited uh, to see it happen. I won't be the editor every year. Uh, in fact, my role in the next two years will diminish and then fade away to nothing. Uh, I've, never I've never considered it my book, but uh, there was enough uh, interest in the industry that the industry of readers and writers of, of sports writing was interested enough that I thought um, – I'll do what I can to get this launched and to get it down the runway, and uh, we'll see if it flies. Uh, I think it will. Uh, even, you know, it wasn't planned to, you know, we didn't know COVID was going to be taking place. Uh, it's been a little strange putting together a book of sports writing and a book where there, at a, in a year when there's been very little sports as we've known it. 
But, um, you know, my faith has always been in the writers, and uh, there was still by far enough quality work produced. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, I think it's going to be a really, really good book. I'm thrilled with the selections that I've made. Um, and it's not all going to be gloom and doom either. Uh, I think one of the things we've learned in this past year is that uh, sports is not confined to uh, the large sporting institutions, but it's, uh, it can also be an individual pursuit. And that's where its real meaning and significance comes from. And I think I've selected a lot of stories that really speak to that. So um, next uh, Christmas, there's going to be some surprises in people's stockings that they didn't think were ever going to be there again. And if you pair the old sport, best sports story series, which lasted for 45 years, the best American sports writing, which lasted for 30 years, and now this one will be entering the 76th year where there has been a collection of sports writing uh, put together. Uh, and I'm very happy to see that uh, that tradition continue. Readers want it. Yeah, they do. <laughs> so you picked all the stories. Is, is this the first time that you've picked all the stories that are going to be in this book? Not in this book, but right? I mean, because you the didn't. Only, it's the only time. Yeah, it's the only time I've picked any story in the book. <laughs> right. Uh, in the pre previous 30 years, all I made were, you know, I would put forward 75 selections to the guest editor, and they were free to fill the book up with selections from those 75 or to add selections of their own outside the 75. I never, not even once, said, oh, this has to be in the book. Uh, this time I did have to make the selections. I have to tell you, it was hard. <laughs> I thought this was going to be easy. But, you know, over the course of the year, I'd probably set aside 200 plus stories on my own. Between the, the, the advisory board, I probably received another close to 200 stories that they picked out. It was interesting to see um, the stories they selected that I hadn't seen. It was also interesting to see stories that multiple people had selected or that I'd already set aside and other people set them aside too, but then to make those final determinations as to what uh, was actually going to be in the book was, I thought that was going to be the easy part, but now I know how the guest editors felt. It was very, very difficult, um, you know, because there is a lot of good material and you, you have, you know, you don't want stories that step in the same footprint and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, there's, there's usually, you know, a half a dozen or so no brainers, but after that, um, you know, there will be, I think 25 stories in the book, you know, you know, you're still picking the best, maybe 25 out of what could have been, you know, there's another 75 or hundred that could, could have made the book, you know? Um, so it's, it's very, very tough, but, um, you know, the readers kind of don't care how you get there. They just want uh, uh, a book that's that's representative, that's that's full of good writing, that uh, that uh, is full of stories that, uh, you know, they read once and then want to read again. That's why they have a bookshelf of 30 years of, you know, the best American sports writing on the shelf. And I hope that uh, 30 years from now, there's uh, 30 years of uh, the year's best sports writing on the show. Well, Glenn, it's awesome that there's so much going on for you right now. Um, but uh, more than anything, uh, 
Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. Pre-order it right now. It's an excellent read. Glenn, it's been so great talking with you. Thanks for coming back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Matt. I really enjoyed it. That was Glenn Stout. Stout's new book, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, America's Original Gangster Couple, goes on sale on March 30th. As usual, I've linked to everything that Stout and I talked about. You can find that on the website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.